I'm going to tell you up front that this episode of Justice Voices will be emotionally intense. Facing realities involved in criminal justice policy sometimes is, including facing the reality of what a lifetime of abuse and exploitation can do to people, a reality that absolutely must be understood by those who make and implement public policy, and by those ordinary citizens who select those who will represent them in making those decisions as public officials. Some prisons are physical, made of concrete and steel. Other prisons are psychological. People in physical prisons know that they're imprisoned. People in psychological prisons, however, including women and children trapped in abusive domestic relationships, may not only deny their imprisonment to themselves and others, but even fight off efforts by family, friends, police, and prosecutors to rescue them from a dangerous, sometimes even deadly, situation. It's one thing to observe the psychological imprisonment of victims of abuse from the outside. It's quite another to have the opportunity to see it from the inside, through the eyes of a victim of a lifetime of abuse. Today's episode of Justice Voices will give you that inside opportunity. Because of its importance, this is a two-part episode. In this part one, you'll meet Donna Lamalino of Springfield, Illinois, who works with a faith-based organization helping homeless women and children who are victims of abuse. Ms. Lamalino is a wonderful, compassionate woman with a strong sense of mission. Talking to her today, you'd likely never suspect that she herself was a victim of a lifetime of abuse from her childhood until the time as a young adult when she was sent to prison for a horrific crime committed by an abusive boyfriend a crime committed while she was absent and had been absent for a couple of weeks while working out of state, a crime that ripped her heart out, but for which she was nevertheless held criminally accountable under Illinois law as interpreted and applied by a prosecutor and judges. How could that be, you may ask? Indeed, good question. Part two of this episode will cover her experience in prison including how she was one of many women incarcerated there who were victims of abuse, some of whom were also being punished for crimes committed by their abusers. Most importantly, part two will cover who Donna Lamalino became, who she is today, and what made all the difference. We want to thank the Illinois Public Health Association for their support, including use of their facilities in Springfield to record these podcast conversations. I also want to thank my co-host for this and hopefully many future episodes, Leonard Joyner, who's one of my former defendants from my years as a federal prosecutor and who shared his own story in episodes one and two of this program. Now be prepared to face some uncomfortable but important realities and to ask yourself the two key public policy questions about the criminal justice system response to what you will hear. Is such a response reasonable? And is it responsible? If the answer to either of those questions is no, then there's need for change, need to do better with, and for victims of abuse. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. Welcome, I'm David Risley. And I'm Leonard Joyner. 
Mr. Joyner and I are co-hosting this episode of Justice Voices. Our guest today is Donna Lomolino. Please introduce yourself to us. I am the Director of Outreach at Inner City Mission. I've been there for 13 years. Inner City Mission is a homeless shelter for women, children, and families here in Springfield. It's a faith-based shelter. And how I arrived there, I came straight from prison there. I had been there only for about a year and a half, and I started working for them. The executive director there took me under his wing and just started teaching me all kinds of things. And I literally wore every hat pretty much there is to wear except for his. But even then, he taught me how to interact with the residents. And just there was a lot of things that I needed to learn because my communication skills were still a little bit, I mean, I was still gun shy, I guess, in a way from the way I grew up. It was, I did not know who I was yet still. I was still finding my voice, if that makes sense. Anyway, so I was mentoring with him and I had started going to school at LCU. I graduated Lincoln Christian University with a human services degree. And that was in 2013. I had started going to UIS of Springfield. University of Illinois of Springfield. Mm-hmm, yes, for the legal studies program, because I have a lot of desires to write policy. I want to change some laws. I feel like there are things that need to be, and I don't know how to go about it yet, but I, I just know that this is the direction that I feel like I'm led to go. Well, Donna, one of the things that we hope to do through this program is to enable people who wouldn't otherwise have any opportunity to do so to see some situations that are critical to making good criminal justice policy, good public policy, and to be able to see it through different eyes. And in this case, to see it through your eyes. Where did you grow up? I grew up on the south side of Chicago in the projects. My mom was a drug dealer, and she had a lot of cops in her pocket, but she would deal. And then she had a lot of parties. She partied herself. I had a lot of dads, unfortunately. What do you mean when you say you had a lot of dads? There were a lot of men in and out of our lives, my siblings and my lives. Do you know who your father, biological father is? Yes, but yeah, he just wasn't really a part of our life. I mean, my mom was living like the devil, (laughs) and my dad got saved when he went to Vietnam War and basically tried to bring her into the fold but mom rejected it. He, he, he didn't divorce her for the longest time. I mean, it was years. And then finally he went his separate way. So that's just how it was. He, he kind of left us there, sort of. But I totally understand why it was probably painful for him. You know, a lot of things. Do you have a relationship with him today? No. But you said that in the interim after that, well, even during that time, You had a lot of dads. I gather that means that there were a lot of men who came and left from your household. Well, my mom, she, I mean, she was, she did a lot of things to support us. And she was a bartender, even though she was a drug dealer. You know, she knew a lot of people. She, when my brother was a baby, she was a prostitute then. And so, I mean, she's, she was very skillful and resourceful if you want to call it that. Street survival. Yes. Mm -hmm. What was it like in your household? 
my mom, we don't get along. And there's a reason why we don't get along today. I, I love my mom, but I don't know if she actually got monetary money for selling us or anything like that, but th we were sold to her men. And sometimes like her, the one man, he wanted me, my mom let him have me. I mean, I don't know how to explain it because she knew about it. So I'm only explaining it with the best words I know how to explain it with, but she let him have me. And then she hated me for, it was like she wanted us to be a certain way. And then she hated me for it because I got them to like me and I did well at making them like me. How old were you at the time you're describing? Seven years old. Anyway, that it was, there was, it was always partying going on and mom would be drunk sometimes and, or hungover, I should say. And she wasn't, I mean, she beat on me a few times, but mostly it was the words that she said that hurt and kind of stuck with me forever. <laughs> I'm still working on that in counseling today. So, yeah. You observed a lot of violence in your household. Yes. My mom and my dad, I mean, I would hear about it too at times, but they, my mom was a tough woman. She took a lot of beatings, but she also was the type that would deliver them too. And I don't know why, but I, I take pride in that to some degree, even though like she was my dad, the one dad that I really loved more than anything, he drug her around the projects naked. This is a story that everybody was telling at the time because apparently she cheated or something to that effect. We weren't there at that time. We were going to visit my grandma. And so <laughs> that all happened while we were away. I just heard about it. Of course, you know, it's gossip and everybody loves gossip. So anyway. You mentioned the projects. Which project was it that you were growing up in? It's no longer there. 31st and Halstead, there was the pit, is what they called it. Anyway, it was row projects, not a high, not a high rise like kind. Now you mentioned you had siblings. Yes. I have two sisters and one brother. We also, like, I had stepsisters and I had half sisters and brothers. I mean, we had a big family because everybody became like our sister that was part of other people's family. I mean, his, the men's, but and the immediate family as my two sisters and my one brother. And they're, I mean, we're all my moms. Now you made mention of one of these fathers, so to speak, one of these men who came to live with your mom and with you as being somebody who was particularly protective of you. Yes. and But at the same time, yes. tell us the rest of the story. He, uh, he would make gestures when I was young or um, younger. He would make gestures about how my body looked like my mom's. And it started off like that. And then he would say, he just said things. And he'd said it in front of my mom. And my mom never did anything, but they would get into these big fights and I had no idea what it was really about. And then he joined me in shower one day. I I don't know how to explain this, but like my stepdad, that, that stepdad was, I loved him. I know what he did, but I loved him. He protected me. He protected me from my mom. 
he protected like nobody else had sex with me after he did because he made sure of it. And so it was kind of like he was my protector. He was gentle with me where that wasn't always the case. How old were you? The gesture started early. I feel like it was around around 10 years old, I guess. The thing is, there's a lot that goes into it up till then. And How old were you when he first had sex with you? I was like about 10 or 11 years old. And my mom was sick is what it was. I mean, I was taking care of everybody. She had had surgery, back surgery, and I, and she, she just wasn't there for him. I know this sounds horrible. I know what it sounds like, but it's, I was the mom in a lot of ways. I'll tell you what it sounds like. It sounds like reality. It was your reality. Here you're talking about a man who had, on the one hand, he was your protector. On the other hand, you were his, and he exploited you. So he was an abuser. You know that now. But he was also your protector. And this dichotomy is one of the most difficult things I know that you've had to deal with in life, in relationships with men before prison, both protector, provider on the one hand, and abuser and exploiter on the other. We wish that it was uncommon, that it were rare. Unfortunately, it's not as uncommon as we would hope. So can I bounce back to the, the mission for a second? Sure can. Because that is the norm. Not necessarily the dad, but somebody who came into the family. And lots of the women have been sexually abused. And I feel like we all have unhealthy ways of relating with people. That's a common story. That's all I wanted to When you say it's that. common in the mission, do you mean they were sexually abused as adults or sexually abused as children? Some of them, but mostly as children. We, we do the ACEs there, and so you can you find that out through the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Assessment. One of the things that people are becoming more and more aware of is the role of trauma Mm -hmm. in shaping not only psychologically a person's psyche, but actually literally changing the brain, the way the brain processes information, and particularly things like that that happen at a very early, young age. A child's world is that household. And so it's natural for a child to think that's the way life is. And in those formative years, those things carry over for years later. And in fact, many of the most violent people, for example, and abusive people, it turns out, were themselves victims of violence and abuse. Yes. It changed them in very bad ways, making them destructive to others and to themselves and to the people that are closest to them. You know that, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that everybody listening to this will understand that and know that. And these are topics that need to be explored in further episodes of this program down the line. But it's important that people at least have that thought in their mind. Let's go back in time now, back to the projects, if you're willing to do that. Yes. And pick up there. So one of the things that 
I think really made it hard for me was my mom. As I got older, I wanted to confront my mom. I wanted to tell my mom what had happened. And anyway, she said that I was a liar. She just said all kinds of things, which she wouldn't, she wouldn't validate it. You know, she wouldn't give me what I needed. And it was, and I remember her look, I remember her being there. I remember her knowing. I remember her bringing someone to my room. This was, and this wasn't my stepdad that I loved. This was some other person that smelled like alcohol. I remember the things that, but one of the things that I think she still doesn't, she does, she will not, she will not admit to it for nothing. But in her defense, my mom was sexually molested as a, and I mean horribly sexually molested as a child. And my grandma was an alcoholic and she was adopted. My mom was adopted. So my grandma had five marriages and one of those marriages, the man was just horrible to my mom. And I understand that. I just, you know, I needed her to help me with that, but she has never been able to help me with that. I had to get that from God, you know, honestly. And actually it was probably better that way, but this is an interesting and important topic, this generational abuse as these things are passed on, almost like a disease from one generation to another. This is difficult, isn't it? Yeah, just it's therapeutic, but it's also heavy. Like, because I, my mom's still alive and I want her to see this. And just like, hopefully she'll, but she's getting ready to die. I mean, she's dying of cancer. So there's, I want her, I wish that she would help me with that. Because for the longest time, I thought that it was my fault, that, that it was in my head, you know, and then I come to find out that my other sisters went through it. And this was just recently, I, we found this out. There was a lot that we've all just realized recently that she did. And like I said, I love my mom. It would be nice if she felt that way towards me. But my mom is like not able to. She's never been able to. So she, our childhood was about who could be the most resourceful. And that's who she loved the most at the time. My mom's very manipulative. And she taught us to be the same. Oh, that's a survival skill. Yes. I'm sorry for good emotion. No, you're fine. You're fine. I, th I think about her and it just really kind of gets to me. Well, your mom's a victim also. Yes, she is. Well, one of the things I want to say to you, Donna, is that hurt people hurt people. Yes. They don't really mean to hurt you, but because they hurting, it's a way for them to release it off them. And sometimes we don't want to face the truth. The truth hurt. When you have to face truth head on, yes. it hurt. It hurt. Some people go through life, their whole life, knowing the truth, but guess what? They won't reveal it. They continue to hurt other people. Just an observation. It's an interesting thing as you talk about this difficult relationship with your mother and your mother's very extremely difficult life herself. Yes. It would have been easy for her to simply walk away. She could have abandoned you. I felt like we were... You ever been a part of... 
And I don't mean, like I said, I've laid that foundation. I love my mom, okay? But you ever feel like you are really a pawn of some sort? I'm not saying that my mom didn't love me, but I feel like she loved me to the fullest capacity that she could. But we were also money in the bank in a way. We were very, I mean, we never got in trouble like that. We did end up in jail and stuff as adults and stuff, but uh, prison, I should say. And it was really out of the manipulation that we learned. You know, my mom just got away with it. She's, I mean, she is excellent at getting people to give them what she has, give, give you what she has. And you walk away thinking, what just happened? You know, she, and and then they still go back and be in her presence and want to give her more money. And, and I'm just saying, that's just how my mom is. She's pretty skilled. But on some levels, we were all part of this scam of sorts. That's the way I look at it. Because she was making money off of, she was making money off of us in some ways. I, I don't know how to explain it. I, or getting something, a barter bartering like sort of i didn't see money be exchanged when she gave me away but i believe that she got something for it we are unable by our circumstances or backgrounds or anything like that to explain what you experienced what your mother experienced the last thing therefore that we would be and this includes people in the in the listening audience able to do, would be to be judgmental about that. And that's important for you, too. I think your mother will appreciate your expressions that you've made here, that you love her. Despite it all, you still love your mother. Yes. I'd fight for her. It'll be important to her to hear that message. I'm glad we recorded it. Thank you. At some point, your mom took you out of the projects in Chicago, and you moved. Yes. Tell us about that. How old were you? And tell us the story of that. Uh, 13 years old and went down to Benton. Mom, we there was a lot of people getting killed around us. There was cat kidnapping. There was a lot of stuff going on. And I was young, so I don't really recall everything the projects was turning sour, though, real sour. When I was growing up, I never felt like I was poor. I never felt like I really didn't have anything that was home for me. And we were all the same, similar, um, as far as nobody had anything. So you didn't really have anything to compare it to. As I think about it now, I understand that, yeah, we were pretty darn poor, <laughs> you know, but at that time I was... I was okay. Anyway, mom moved us to Southern Illinois to Benton. Did this man go with you? Yes, and that's where things picked up even more so. There was a lot that took place. Like, I just became his. Like, and that's when, because my mom was very, he would stick up for me, he would do things for me. Like I became, she became the outsider almost. And I hate to say this, but I actually, I actually liked it to some degree because I wanted to hurt my mom in some ways because she hurt me. And so in some ways I enjoyed that attention. How did he treat your mom? 
she was just off in the corner sometimes. I mean, we were all together, but he would constantly make comments about me and he'd end up in the shower with me or something of that nature. He was, he just used to come in the shower with me a lot. And that was when we were living in Johnston City. We moved from Benton to Johnston City. Now, this is in Southern Illinois. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, tell us about how things unfolded in your life from that point up until the time you yourself became a parent. I wanted to be different. I wanted to not grow up and be like my mom. They were alcoholics, I felt like, and I was really hell-bent against not being a drinker and not doing drugs and none of that. And that has never really, I've tried everything, but I really have never cared for any of it. My thought was if I just went to school that I would be so much different than she was. And because my mom never graduated high school, she did end up getting her GED when we were in high school, which was kind of cool. But I decided to go to school and I became an LPN. And I was working. Licensed practical licensed nurse. Licensed practical nurse, yes. I had uh, the IV certification at the time. And I went and moved to Florida, actually. And I mean, there was I was in Southern Illinois for a little while, but then I moved to Florida after this. In that way, I changed my life from my mom's because, I mean, I was making very good money at then because I was a on-call nurse, so I was making the high dollar. But I had the problem of choosing very unhealthy men, very abusive men. I had this one man that threw a meat cleaver at me while I was running out the door with my son in my arms, and yet I still went back to him. I... It didn't have any place else to go at the time. I did escape him, but then only to go to the man that he's the reason why I'm here, you know, why I ended up in prison. So, How many men along the way as, as an adult? At that time, five. I mean, I really wasn't, I tried hard to do the right thing, but I also, <laughs> I mean, the, my son's father was a married man, okay, and his wife was a Christian woman, okay, and this is just the like a little bit of something that was so beautiful to me because I really loved that woman. She was so kind to me, even though I knew, even though she knew that me and him, and I was trying to break away from him, but he's, he would come to me. And of course, I was a kid. My mom would justify it with me. So it was okay. How old? I, I met him when I was 18, 17 years old. And 18 years old is when I finally did something with him because I still was holding myself, even though all this other stuff had happened. Consensually, I did not give it up. I was thinking that I was going to do the right thing. And anyway, when I found out she had come beside me, this lady, and she was an awesome lady. And I didn't understand then at, at that time what was so beautiful about her. And it was really Jesus inside of her. I mean, I swear it was just like glowing from her. And she just had this, the wonderful, wonderful disposition. I wanted to be like her, not because of her husband, but because she just had this, and I tried to leave him. But like I said, 
it would last maybe a month and then he'd come. And then, um, I mean, even after my baby was born, she tried to friend, you know, befriend me. And eventually she gave up on me. Yeah. So I was with him for 10 years and honestly, eight years into the relationship, he, he stopped talking to me, but I waited for him because I, I really loved him. So I graduated nursing school and I had, it was about right then that I stopped waiting on Joseph's dad to come back. His name is James. And I started, my sister Michelle and I went out partying and she was like, you need to stop waiting at home and, you know, for that man. And so I went out partying and, and I met my next relationship eventually. I mean, after a few weeks of just like being crazy with it, um, I met my next person and I ended up getting pregnant by him and uh, I ended up having abortion. So Joseph's here and I have this other relationship and he was a very abusive man, but that's the way I understood love. So that wasn't bothering me so much. It was that my mom didn't like that he was a black man. And I stayed in this relationship regardless, but I ended up getting pregnant. Mom said she wouldn't support that. I ended up going and having the abortion. Shortly after that, I tried to kill myself. And I was in a mental hospital because of right after the abortion, that's how mom handled it. She said, this is what she said was, oh, I would have been there for you. You know, it would have been okay, we would have worked it out. And of course, that's like, I just killed this baby. And that's the way I looked at it. Then that man, I used to call him rent. Um, he like forgave me and everything for that, but I couldn't forgive myself for that. And I ran from him. This man, I'm just trying to explain to you, he was very abusive. He threw a meat cleaver at me. I think I brought that up the first time there was somebody who was just absolutely crazy. We would have these physical fights that fists and everything is very volatile. Okay. And in relation in the relationship with my son's father, it was too, to some degree, but nothing like this. This was crazy. And anyway, eventually I ended up leaving him because of my own negative feelings of myself after the abortion and him forgiving me and wanting to move on really bothered me. I didn't understand that then. I understand it now. Anyway, I moved to, I ran away basically with just the clothes on our back and moved to Florida to where my sister's ex-husband lived. And he was a friend of mine. Basically we moved in with him. And shortly after that, I had a job as a nurse down there and I had been working and I met this man. His, and that's the man who ended up, uh, I met this man who was a CNA and he was a CNA and he had been a he had been trained as a pilot before. He was very brilliant in a lot of ways. I had only just started talking with him, and but I had not really went with him because he was also married. He was in and out of their marriage and just was going to get a divorce and wasn't and then was. Anyway, before it's over done with, they finally totally separated, but I felt like I was part of the reason for that. And 
Anyway, he was a different kind of abusive. I mean, everything felt like love. I don't know how to explain that. It's just... Can you... Let's hit the pause button right there, though. That's the second time you've said that. In your mind at the time, this was what love was like. Yes. Now, as you've described your childhood, all of the relationships, all of the significant relationships you've described up to this point have been highly abusive in one way or another, whether it be sexually, violently, combination thereof, mentally, manipulative, exploitative. And you now have said a couple of times, in your mind at the time, this is what love is like. Will you try the best you're able to explain that perspective? Can you help us understand that? I can give you examples. I would go to the store, and because I was five minutes later than what he thought that I would be, he would have me pull my pants down so he could smell me to make sure that I hadn't been. And this is my son, my daughter's father, the one that, that murdered my son. Why would he want to smell you? you st- Just to make sure that I had not been someplace else with somebody else. It was this constant thinking that I was with somebody else. When I was under his thumb constantly, I mean, I didn't do anything without him. But I thought about that as, (laughs) I felt like that was love, you know? I don't know how to, it's very hard to explain that, but because he cared so much to, like he cared to know, he cared to, like if, if he said that, if he pulled that gun and was pointing it at me, you know, which happened once, and told me how much he would hurt me if anybody, if I ever went with anybody else. To me, that, and I'm talking hurt me as in kill me, I think he may have used those words. I can't really remember exactly, but I understood that if I went anywhere or did anything that he was going to, it was going to matter so much to him, I think that's a better way of saying it, matter so much to him that he would kill me for it or that he would fight me for it. And for whatever reason, it's still kind of like something inside of me. Like I believe that if you don't argue that you don't love somebody, you have to, I used to say this to my ex-husband and he thought that I was crazy. I was like, you have to be willing to draw blood. (laughs) I can't even believe I said those things, how crazy I was, but I did because I didn't like that he wouldn't argue with me, because to me, it amounted that he didn't care. So if somebody is a nice guy, and they don't want to fight with you, by this time, you had, in your mind, come to the conclusion, well, they must not care about me. Right. The flip side of that being that if somebody is obsessively controlling, as if you are a piece of property, and that you are their captive and they feel that their possession of you as if you were some sort of object is threatened that someone else might steal you away from them, that somehow that type of caring was love. Yes. Now, one, of course, the former, the kindness, is love and value of you as a person and respect for you as a person who has your own views and who can be valued and cared for, cared about, without being possessed 
and controlled. The other one is more the person who is controlling you, seeking to control you, not caring about you, but caring about their interests as the possessor, the oppressor. And yet, and somehow in your mind, you had it switched backwards. I, I don't think that it's so unique, though. I'm okay. just saying that, because that is, people will say all the time, why do you go back to an abusive situation? If that's all you grew up around, it's like, what do you have it to compare to? Everything else feels like a fairy tale. It's not like you don't want something good, but they're not 100% bad either. There are good days. And that's where you, I guess maybe it's that you hope for those good days. And the bad days don't seem so bad when this, I mean, this is the best that you've had, if that makes sense. It does make sense. But it doesn't make sense if you look at things only from the surface without having that understanding and that background. And it's difficult for people to understand how the women who are victims, and and they'll even sometimes call the police because of something that's happened. And yet when the police arrive, by that time, things are already starting to turn around and the prosecutor is willing to go to bat, file charges, and put an end to this to liberate this woman from this abusive relationship. And who pulls the plug on the whole thing? Woman. The woman. The victim. Why? Because what you're describing has happened in her mind. Partly because of manipulation from the abuser. The abusers are typically very manipulative, and they've learned how to manipulate their victims into holding them captive with a kind of mental prison in which they convince the victim that it's the victim's fault. That's exactly right. Oh, my goodness. Yes. (laughs) I have definitely experienced that uh, where, I mean, if I would get in trouble to the point of having some physical type of altercation, it was always my fault. And in fact, but that's how I grew up, though. This happens with children. It happens with adults. One of the tools of the abuser is to make the victim of the abuse feel, you made me mad. You made me do what I did. And so it's your fault. Well, once the abuser is successful in convincing you of that, and you take responsibility for their bad behavior, it's not hard at all to imagine why a woman or a child, but let's say in this case an abused woman in an abusive relationship, would say, well, the solution to this is not for me to call the police. The solution to this bad problem is for me to stop provoking this response. It's on me. That's exactly how it was with my son. All I could think about was how to not get in trouble for that day. How could... And I remember something that my son asked me, do you think he hates me? Do you think he hates me? And I was like, no, he loves us. He just wants us to be better. He's just helping us to be better. There's nothing that bothers me more than me training up my son the way that I really wanted not to be like, you know what I'm saying? I remember these things that I was teaching him and then I was gone. What you're about to say is important. But let's put it in some context. Yes. You've told us about how 
you were being successful in your nursing as a licensed practical nurse with employment in Florida. And you've entered into a relationship, you said, with this man who was abusive, possessive, not altogether bad, but these characteristics, these these aspects of him were very bad in their impact upon you and upon your son. Where was that happening? In Florida, somewhat. It started it started with we were supposed to get a house. There was just all these plans and what would make things better is if my son went and stayed with my mom for a short time. It turned out he stayed with my mom for nine months. And when I went back Where was she? She was in Illinois, southern Illinois. And when I went back, I would go back and see my son every month, pretty much. And um, But when I went to bring him back into the house after I had been with him for all that time, it was like a different training took place that I wasn't even aware of. And I only realize it now because after the fact. And it was... Like, he became number one. He became number one and everything else second. Everything. He became number one to you. Yeah. Yes. Like, I was more concerned with what he thought, what he, everything. And so when my son came into the back into the picture. Now, let's keep places straight here. So coming back into the picture meant he... I he was to, staying with your mother in Southern Illinois. You were living in Florida. Your boyfriend, we'll call him that, was with you in Florida. Yes. And your son now has come back to you in Florida. Yes. Okay. Yes. And we were there for a short time, but right, and then we started to move back to Illinois. It was because I had I, I got pregnant, and it was actually... A planned pregnancy, which sometimes I, I mean, my daughter, I love her, but I can't believe that I planned to be pregnant with him, but that's just what it was. Was this a mutual plan? Yeah, yeah. I I don't even, like, if I explain to you where my head was, like, as soon as he wanted me and loved me, I felt the pit of my stomach that I needed to run away, but I didn't. Like, the, you know, like I was afraid that he loved me. Okay, now everything's my fault that he left his wife, that he now is without a job, That because this is exactly how it went. And so I felt a responsibility to him, and it felt very heavy. And so the more I stayed with him, the more there was this dependency on me because I was the one who was making all the money. Then Joseph wasn't there for that time. And when he came back in to the house, Joseph, when Joseph came back from Southern Illinois, it was like that whole time, it was more of a focus on me. It's about what I want. It was this selfish endeavor are you, you know, describing who? Him, uh, Ernst, which okay. is the man who murdered my son. So Joseph, then, if I'm understanding you correctly, Ernst acted as if Joseph were a threat to him? I Competition. would have never guessed it back then. I might have, I can't remember ever thinking that, but yes. 
yes. There were times that, like after the fact, I have thought Joseph was right in asking the questions that he did. Does he hate me? He wanted to understand. He was, he felt his anger towards him. But every time, any time was ex- anything was expressed, I felt like it was because he loved us that he was trying to discipline us because he wanted us better. And this all was coming because he was showing me in the Bible that this is what you do. This is how you love somebody. You, It was like there, he was proving it in the Bible, but I had no clue what the Bible was about. So his direction, I mean, I didn't question it. I didn't anything. I mean, I just went with what he said to do. You raised a couple of things, threads here I'd like to follow. One is, if I'm hearing you correctly, this was a man who was possessive, controlling, and who wanted to control as much as he could about you for whatever reasons. We won't judge him. Right. I don't know anything about his background, what was going on in his mind. We're just talking about what is. And he was convincing you, and maybe even himself, in fact, probably himself, that his bad behavior was not his fault, it was your fault. Yes, that is exactly right. And you may both have bought into that lie. And then, of course, in a sense, you're his psychological prisoner. And then along comes Joseph, your son, the center of your life, who displaces Ernst at the center of your life. Joseph is loved. For Ernst to view that as a threat and competition is easy to understand from that perspective. And for Joseph to feel that, that in fact, Ernst may pretend to love and accept him, but in fact, deep down, Ernst is viewing him as competition, a threat, consciously or subconsciously, and treating him accordingly. And a child, it's easy for a child, as you know from your own experience, to pick up on that. Yeah. And at the same time, you're trying to convince yourself, no, this is normal, that we're really loved. In the face of what you now can see as being the big lie, you wanted to believe it. Now, this is interesting that you say he pulled out the Bible to support his views. You raised that in a uh, conversation that we had before we started recording interview, a couple of days before we talked on the telephone. And you were telling me that he was, these are going to be my words, but essentially that what he was communicating to you and trying to use biblical verses to back up this view that you are a sinner, depraved, and as such deserving of God's wrath and punishment, and that therefore he is an instrument of punishment was acting on behalf of God, and that it would be wrong for you to view that as unrighteous or unjust. Have I got it right? Yes. I mean, I wouldn't have called it wrath. At that time, I didn't really understand it. But yeah, that's exactly what it was. It just used better terminology than I would have, you know, so, yeah. And that's an interesting... And I will tell you, that is a depraved twist on God and religion. 
but it was beautiful for me. So before it was over and done with, it was beautiful for me because... His version of religion? No. I mean, his, his version sought, made me seek out who the real God was. And that, before he came along, I mean, I never owned a Bible. I never had anything like that as I was growing up. But when my son was born, I wanted to teach him stuff about God, even though I had no clue what that meant. I had a little story, this little Bible story book that I would read from to him. And my son's favorite story was Joseph and his coat of many colors. And all that I have learned from the Bible up to that point had come from this little children's Bible when I would read to my son. He would just sit in my lap and we would just read, and he'd want to read that story over and over. And it was the most, I mean, I love that. But when I got to jail, I was searching for that story and I couldn't find it because like I said, I didn't know anything about anything about the Bible. So I was looking for the book of Joseph <laughs> and it doesn't exist and nobody there, nobody there knew what I was talking about. This is the pivotal point in my life really because I was like praying and didn't even know I was praying. I was sort of kind of crying out to God, I guess, in a lot of ways, because I was like, I need this. I need this. I need the story to feel close to my son. At this time, he had been gone. He's in heaven. And uh, all I had was a Gideon's Bible. And about five days after being in jail, this jail ministry shows up. And this lady was saying how she how she was going to do her study. She was planning this study. She had it ready. She said about midweek, God put it on her heart to do this other study. But each day she fought with that until the day that she came in, she said, it was so heavily on her heart that we have to change it. This is what we're going to study. Turn to Genesis 37. We're going to study the, the story of Joseph. Now, if that is not my hand touch literally from God, I don't know what is. And that from then on, I... I mean, I felt special, but yet, like, horrible at the same time, like the crud under people's shoes, under the, because of all over the news, here I am, this baby killer, I'm responsible for my son's death, and here God answered my prayer, and that helped me look deeper into who he was. I was only wanting to read it at first, just because... That's the only thing that I could get a hold of that I could be closer to my son with. I felt like just by reading that story and then for him to show up like he did, him as in God, show up the way he did to give me that story was the most profound thing I think that's happened to me in my entire life, honestly. Anyway, from then on, I mean, I read the New Testament in like one week be waiting for them to come back. I, you know, then they came back with a whole new Bible. And of course, I mean, it just became this endless effort to understand who he was, the big H E. That's why I say that Ernst may have done that all wrongly, but it actually made me grab a hold of this, like a dog with a stake, because I couldn't let it go until I understood and I still am learning, but I know that that God that he served was not the God that I serve. Well, the God or the view of religion that he was using 
as a tool of oppression for you. It's so ironic that he would use the words of God, the real God, to try to do that. It's not surprising that the real God would take that momentum and use it to bring you into a new understanding, a new relationship with God, a new life. As I understand it from talking to you, I think I'm accurately expressing it, aren't I? Yes, most definitely. So that's an aspect of this abuse that really struck me as you were summarizing your story in our first conversation. This perversion of religion to try to justify that you are bad, you are evil, you deserve to be punished, and that the punisher is somehow acting righteously as, as, righteously as the hand of God in a, in a way that's justified by God. But you've made allusion here to a great tragedy, horrific tragedy that developed from this. Tell us about that and where people were. My son and my daughter, who was four months old, my son being eight years old, eight and a half. Joseph. Joseph was in Illinois with Ernst. I had went to Florida to work. I was still waiting for reciprocity as far as my nursing license in Illinois because I was only licensed in Florida at this time. When I had went down there, he had watched Joseph and Alyssa for, I had been gone for about, I was supposed to be gone for about a whole month, but I, after about two weeks of being gone, he contacted me saying that he accidentally murdered Joseph, uh, accidentally killed Joseph. He didn't use those words. It's one of the things what that What words he, do you recall him using? He said that he accidentally killed Joseph. And when I talked about things with him, it was like he was making it really clear that he was going to kill himself, kill my daughter. He was going to... The, he, because I had tried to talk about going to the police, this is all happening over the phone. I want you to slow down, and let's go through this in slow motion as it was happening to you. So you say that Ernst told you, I accidentally killed Joseph. Yeah. Tell us how that news impacted you. I didn't believe it. I mean, I understood it, but... It seemed unreal? It seemed unreal. And every bit of my reactions after him saying that, it seemed like at first were all more about preserving my li my daughter's life and his because I I couldn't grasp the idea that my son was gone. I heard what he was saying. But it didn't make sense to me. I don't know how to better explain that. All I know is that when he said what he said, it was like I kept asking, like I wanted to know more, and he wouldn't go into it. Like 
he kept saying, like, I wanted to know that I could see him. I wanted to see him. I wanted to, I wanted him to take, I wanted him to take him to the hospital. I had this whole discussion about him doing something to fix things, but he was like, no, you can't see him. And then I, I, I started, I mean, I questioned him whether it was real or not, but he, because I thought at first he was joking. I remember when the call came, because at first it was on a little beeper that I had these 911 messages that I was getting from the beeper. And I call back to a the pager. house. Pager. Yeah. And I call back to the house. And when I call there, it, that's that's the very thing that he said. And I literally, I remember saying, you're kidding me. You, you've got to be kidding me. I, I just don't, I, I don't remember ever actually like thinking that it was real. Before that phone call had the potential that Ernst could kill your son formulated itself in your brain, in your no, mind? No, never. But I mean, I get what they're saying in the courts. Okay, let's, we'll get to that. Okay. Just in your mind. No. Is that why it seemed unreal to you? It, like, whoever thinks that that's going to happen. I mean, I don't care how crazy things have been. I've been around many people who are in abusive relationships and nothing happens like that. I know that that's not a good way to look at it, but it's like you, you don't even think about, nobody ever expects that to happen. And I did not think anything like that was going to happen. I thought that he loved us. I mean, I thought that he cared. I never thought that it was going to go like that. I mean, I, I felt like he was mean at times and we would argue, but then he'd talk me out of what I was thinking. He'd say his favorite thing to say was, well, I love him enough to discipline him because as if I wasn't, as if I didn't care enough to discipline my son in the way that he thought was appropriate. You've used the word hope. You've said that when things were bad, you would stay because it was intermittent, and you would hope that this would pass and that things would get better, correct? Yes. If you, in your mind, thought that this is bad, this is really bad, and it could go so bad. I never thought like that, though. <laughs> I mean, I understood that this was, I understood some parts that were bad, but you never think that it's going to go this bad. I never thought that he was going to kill my son. Okay, now I'm going to inject my own thoughts here. Yes, sir. What you describe as hope, I hear as denial. I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I mean that it's a false hope that it's a way of coping with a very bad situation combined with the idea that somehow you are the cause of this. It's your fault. And that therefore you have some degree of control over whether things are good or bad tomorrow. Because if only you will stop provoking this abuse or this anger, or if only Joseph will stop misbehaving, so he needs to be disciplined, well, then things will get better. 
All of which misses the point, which is this man is doing violence physically and emotionally to me and my son to be a psychological prisoner. Why? Why would you allow yourself to be that psychological prisoner? Why not just break out of the prison? Well, what in your background from an earliest childhood would make you see your prison as prison? But why would you want to face that? It would be natural to say, I'm not in prison. I have this hope. Now, the people who are listening can't see you right now. But there are tears flowing down your cheeks. What are you feeling? All along, uh, all I've thought about is how come my, bro my boy stayed? I think that has been the most troubling well, there's a lot of troubling realities, but that was so hard for me because I just sit there and I thought, why did he continue to stay? And and I knew that it was something that I obviously trained him up to do. It's like I needed that. You needed what? To just realize. I didn't even realize it was a prison. Like, I mean, I understood. I get that because I understand what what prison was really like for me. That was more of a prison than prison was. But I didn't understand that till I got there. I'm sorry. This is painful. It's painful to listen to. <laughs> it's far more painful for you to share. I, I admire your courage in being willing to do it and wanting to do it. You're nodding. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sorry, yes, I do. I mean, as much as it's painful, I it's in some ways therapeutic, and I am very hopeful that others will learn from it. I know that in the mission, I share my testimony all the time with the ladies because I see this repeated just without the very tragic ending, but it's only by the grace of God that it hasn't happened that way. It seems to me that there, it's just opportunity because they're in similar situations. They are with abusive men, and yet they stay. The children stay in that environment. The women will stay. I have a lady at the mission right now doing this very thing, and the man threatened to kill her kids. I... Yeah. I want to help in those kinds of situations. There is a lot that I want to take place when it comes to that. Well, I can tell you, I grew up in an almost Norman Rockwell-type <laughs> upbringing, community, family. And the world you grew up in and the world I grew up in are very different. Now, in the course of my career as a prosecutor, those worlds have intersected enough for me to have some appreciation but I can tell you that it's very difficult for people, probably many of the people who are listening, to understand why someone who is a woman who's abused would remain in these relationships. And that's why we're exploring this, because it's important for people like me to understand what it's like to be you and living in that world. And I can tell you this, that what seems seemed to me, 
until I came to understand it more, to be totally irrational behavior of going back to the abuser and fighting off the prosecutors, the people in the community that are trying to rescue a woman from what is obviously to them a very toxic and, and potentially dangerous relationship. It's very difficult to understand why does a woman fight off all these efforts to help? It seems irrational. And yet, if we can put ourselves in your world, see it through your eyes, for you to break out of that prison would require for you to recognize it as prison. And what in the world in your life up to that point would have equipped you to be able to see that sort of relationship as prison? For you, it's normal. Yeah. And you've used the word, it's almost seemed like a fantasy, any other sort of life. Unfortunately, I have that reality even still today that I fight a little bit because at the mission, you know, I get to see healthier couples and stuff like that. I've gotten to go to a wedding that they don't rip each other apart before the day is up. It's just an entirely different way of living the way that I have gotten experiencing, got to experience things at the mission because they have adopted me as their family, the people who own, who uh, run the mission. So I, uh, I have been blessed in that way. I mean, I, I know that if I would have went out of prison and went home, which I had that option, I do not think that I would have made it. I mean, I mean, I could have seriously, I could have really, I, I mean, I could see myself killing myself at that time because my mom still blames me to this day for what happened to my son. And one of my sisters does too. And it's just a very toxic environment, you know. I knew I couldn't go there. So I went where I knew no one. And that's how that's how I was able to make it. And I'm so thankful for them because they believed in me. They they saw a good in me. And even when I've not behaved necessarily always. And I've gotten angry and wanted to bite the hand that fed me many times because it's just in my nature not to trust. And I've hurt people around me that, but thankfully they are aware and understand what it's like for somebody like myself. So they have been very understanding in that, especially Mr. Payne. He's my, my closest friend of all of them there. And my mentor, but I've also gotten very angry with him over things just because, I don't know, Miss, I just always would think that he was trying to, people are trying to take advantage of me and I just lash out and it wasn't anything like that. <laughs> it's just, it's funny, you know, I'd rather embrace the very abusive person then and it's very uncomfortable getting to know the the healthy if that makes sense so and i can testify everyone around me can testify to that <laughs> because i've definitely been uh i've been through it when it comes to that teaching everyone with my experience with them the healthy people that is well anger <laughs> can be a defense and to let go of the anger makes you vulnerable. 
And sometimes, perhaps, to feel kindness is painful. Very. Not because the kindness itself is painful, but because it opens you up to feel the distinction, the contrast between that, you're nodding your head, yes, <laughs> and what has been in your life all this time up to that point. I remember my first Christmas at the mission, and it was wonderful. And I sat in a corner, turned myself towards the wall, and I cried because there was no... There was no alcohol, there was no, it was just very kind. And no one, and people gave to us, and I'm talking me as an adult, and they gave to us for no reason. There was nothing wanted in return, just a gift, which took a long time to really wrap my mind around a gift and what that, because most of the time that comes with attached the difference between a gift with no strings right and bait yeah wrapped up in gift paper yeah gift wrapping exactly with, with the string attached <laughs> like a fisherman with the hook yes up to this point i guarantee you people who are listening to this are wondering this woman has kept making reference to her being in prison what in the world would this woman have gone to prison for? What did you go to prison for? The murder of my son through accountability theory. Okay, now, <laughs> correct me if I've got it wrong, but I don't think I have. I think I've got it right. You're in Florida. You've been there for a couple of weeks. Yes. You get a phone call from Ernst in Illinois. And he said, I've accidentally killed your son. Yes. Now, I can tell you at that point, when I didn't know you, and we're talking about you had gone to prison for murder, I was assuming in my mind that you went to prison for murdering Ernst. But no. You went to prison for being held legally liable for the murder of your son. Yes. Even though you were in Florida. Yes. And Ernst killed him, beat him to death. They said that I should have known. I think the, the murder charge reads just like that. I should have known that he would do this, paraphrasing, but the major understanding is I should have known that these acts would take place and cause bar bodily harm to cause death. And he never beat him like that, but he, there were history, there was history of us having issues with abuse within the last six months or so. It was, I was still pregnant, but they questioned us in front of uh, DCFS and stuff like this, so it was kind of, I grew up around secrets, lots of secrets. I feel like I was, he was right there. I couldn't speak up, and neither could Joseph. And they were there. DCFS was there. Kind of just going, I'm sorry, I'm spinning. I don't remember. So DCFS had come 
to make a visit. Somebody must have complained or something. The uh, school did because Joseph had marks on his back and Ernst had beaten Joseph and he went to school and he was not, he was, it was, it was bad enough where they contacted us and, and it was bad. I mean, it's bad no matter it's, it was bad. So when they came, they didn't remove him or anything. They basically let us keep him and, but they, I, I feel so bad that they, I mean, cause I kind of, you know how when you go back in time and you start thinking about things that could have changed things, and one of the things that I feel like could have changed things is if the DCFS would have, like if they would have questioned us each separately, but they didn't. Joseph didn't get questioned separately, and I just... Was Joseph present when the, by the way, when we talk about DCFS, for people who aren't familiar, we're talking about the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services, and so they were tasked for whatever reason, a call from or the notice school. from the school to come out and do an assessment of this situation and to assess the family dynamics, the circumstances, and the potential risk or dangers to the to the children, particularly Joseph, who was in school. Yes. All right. So are you saying that while the DCFS worker or workers were there that Joseph was present during these conversations? Yes. We were all right there, and they questioned us right in front of each other. And I, after all of that, I know that there became a stink about that at some point in DCFS, and they changed some stuff when it comes to that. There is a Joseph Duncan Law, believe it or not, named after my son. I, I don't know. I mean, I know they use it like a, it has to do with where if a child moves from here to there, that if there's a record of DCFS, it follows them to here. And I am thankful for that, that my son, you know, because of his death that happened, you know, that they, that law was made and hopefully children are saved because of that. In our case, the DCFS questioned us in front of our abuser. And that's what I kind of want to say, even though back then I wouldn't have called him that. And I feel like that made a huge difference on the truthfulness of everything. Because I mean, I'm just going to say like, one of the things that I've grown up believing is that what happens behind these walls is behind these walls. You don't really talk about that stuff. That's just, that's family. Because that's what the abuser told you. That's what my mom told me. That's what everyone has said. You yeah, know, your mom was both your mom and an abuser. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just a domestic version of this nonsense in school, where oh, it's bad to be a tattletale. It's a reality, though, in the circles that I go in. It's a reality that serves and protects the abusers. Yes. It's the idea that somehow. To reveal the truth is bad. To the benefit of who? The victims? No. To the benefit of the victimizer. Yeah. This is a manipulation psychologically by the victimizers, by the abusers. I agree with you, but I also want to say that it is most every abusive situation. It takes time. And even, I don't know too many women that have been beat on really call the police 
I mean, there's so much that goes on. I mean, because you're not supposed to. If it gets out of hand, maybe the neighbor will call many times, but not the one being abused. It's like someone turns it in and now the state will take it, pick it up at times. But for the most part, I mean, they still need that person to the, the, the abused one to speak on behalf, you know, of what took place. To tell the truth and continue to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and yes. to be willing to stick with it. I can tell you, speaking on from the perspective of the DCFS workers, they are tasked with sometimes an almost impossible role of they're supposed to somehow visit a home and discern the reality of what's going on here and predict the future. Thank okay. you for saying that. I've been so angry with DCFS for years, but I appreciate you saying that because it's almost like I was supposed to predict also, and I can see it clearly. Clear That makes huge sense. Like they were supposed to predict something as well, but I do still believe that they should have questioned us separately, but I appreciate you saying that. Well, it's probably true. They should have questioned people separately. So you went to prison because you failed to predict the future. Yes. You went to prison because in the eyes of the law, as it existed and as it was applied in that case, you had a duty to protect your son from a reasonably foreseeable outcome of death or serious bodily injury, and you failed to protect him from that. So the fact that you were in a different state at the time of the murder really was legally irrelevant because it was your duty to be there, foresee what was going to be happening, and to prevent it from happening. And because you failed to act and intervene, you went to prison for the murder of your son, Joseph. Yes, that is accurate. For how long? 22 years, 100% of the time. 22 years. And it could have been a lot worse. Yes, the, the, the what's that attorney... Um, the person on the other side, I can't the think prosecutor. of it. The prosecutor. He uh, wanted me to go down for, like, I thought 40-some years, 35, 40, I don't remember. But I had a bench trial, and the judge just went about two years above the minimum that they could give me. The minimum was 20. The prosecutor, according to news reports, had entered into an agreement that would cap the maximum potential punishment at 35 years in return for you not requesting a change of venue. And you... I didn't even know that. <laughs> so that's what the news report Well, said. I'm sure that's true. Oh, well, somewhat. I mean, they've only been a little foggy on a couple things, and I don't understand why they do that, but that's, that's newspapers selling papers, so... Okay. <laughs> but in any event, it was capped at 35 years, and you could have had a jury trial. But you and your lawyer opted to have a, what you call a bench trial, which for people who don't understand that, what that means is you waive your right to a jury and you agree that the judge will act as both judge and jury. And so it's just the judge you present the case to. Have I got it right? Yes, sir. And the judge found you guilty. Yes. They reversed the murder conviction, right? In my research that I've done, which hasn't been exhaustive at this point, it appears that the opinion on appeal was was not a published opinion. So it's unpublished, so I haven't read it. But it was apparently given by your lawyer to news media that reported about it, and uh, they said that the judge said that the evidence was sufficient for you to be convicted on every count, including murder, the judge is, on appeal. 
but that it wasn't lawful for you to be sent to prison for all of the counts that you were convicted of. And so the murder charge, you couldn't be punished for both that and one of the lesser charges that you were convicted of. And so the murder charge on a basically a legal technicality, not because you weren't guilty of it in the eyes of the law or in the eyes of the court, but because you couldn't, it was like double punishment for the same thing. The murder charge was vacated, but your sentence remained the same. Have I got that right? No, I... Or it went down? It went down. Okay. 22 years, then I had to serve 10, of which I served eight and a half. Okay, so instead of being 22 years... 100%. 100%, it became 22 years. It came ten per, It came down to 10 years at 85%. Okay, and so you served eight and a half years in prison. Yes. Where did you serve that I in served prison? six years of it in Dwight and two and a half years in Lincoln. These are prisons in Illinois? Yes, I think it was a little shorter than that because... It would have been like five or so years in Dwight because I spent time in Alton forensic for mentally, for people who were not healthy enough to stand trial. And that was before trial. Yes. So, I mean, there, that counts towards your time, though, in some way. Yeah. That would happen because your lawyer, presumably, made a motion to ask the judge for you to be evaluated and potentially treated because you are not mentally fit to stand trial, which means mentally capable of understanding the nature of the charges against you and being able to reasonably contribute with your lawyer to your defense. You're nodding your head. Yes, I'm sorry, yes. <laughs> and that suggests that your lawyer was presenting to the judge reason to believe that you weren't completely mentally competent, mentally fit to go to trial. Ironically, a trial in which the charge was that you had the mental capacity to predict the future and to intervene to avoid the beating death of your son. I find an irony in that. Yeah. In any event, so how long were you in this mental evaluation state? I'm thinking it was like nine months, maybe. I don't know, maybe it was longer than that. I don't, I guess it's like about a year, I would guess. But at the end of that period of time, the judge found that you were fit to stand trial. Yeah. Apparently it took that long to get to that point. Yeah. Without knowing the details, that just suggests to me, based on my experience and background, that rather than just having a quick evaluation in which the uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever, that forensic evaluation team was finding that, no, this woman is good to go, that they found that there was substantial reason to doubt that, yes. and that you went through a period of time of treatment and mental rehabilitation, so to speak, to be able to be in a situation fit to go to trial. Yes. That's what I find so ironic about that situation. I feel like I am guilty of some things for sure. And honestly, I I understand why they came to the to what they did. But I also and I don't want to give the impression that I do not take responsibility for my actions, but today I understand things so differently than what I did back then. And I kind of feel like I did what I knew to do 
in all of those situations. I don't think that I did well <laughs> at all, you know, but I did what I understood. And this is where I feel like it does not help me because I am not stupid. I realized that I was an LPN. I realized that I but th this had nothing to do with being, st I don't feel like it has to do with being stupid, you know, or just being even ignorant almost. It's like ignorant maybe to a different lifestyle. I mean, to a different way of understanding things. I just, like I am guilty, but not guilty of it like they say that I am. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, to be blunt, yes, as a mother, you did have a duty to protect your son. And yes, you failed. That's true. From a public policy question, the real questions are why? And until you understand why, you don't really understand, well, then how should we respond to this problem if you were looking at it before your son was murdered and then after he's murdered, in which no amount of punishment is going to undo it? And what's the appropriate response? How do we deal with that? I will tell you as I sit here right now, I do not know the answer to that. What I do know is there are surely better answers than what you're describing. Now, what I want to do if, is to shift the next phase of this interview to talking about your prison experience. Okay. And then your experience after you got out of prison and what's going on in your life today. This episode of Justice Voices will be continued in Part 2, which will include the stories of Donna's experiences in prison, the challenges she faced and in some respects still faces after release from prison, and her work today with abused women and children. As she and co-host Leonard Joyner discuss and compare their prison and reentry experiences and observations, you'll likely be struck by the many parallels and similarities. Part 2 also includes Donna's reflections on lessons learned from her life experiences and her thoughts regarding needed public policy changes regarding abused women and children. You can help spread her message by sharing it with others, especially those who most need to hear and benefit from Donna's story and insights, and with public policymakers and public officials. Donna's is a story that needs to be told a voice that needs to be heard, and heard widely. You can help spread Donna's message by hitting the like and subscribe buttons if you're listening on YouTube, or by downloading this episode and following Justice Voices if listening on other podcast platforms. To learn more about Justice Voices, or to contribute to help support the program, please visit our website at justicevoices.org. To share your own thoughts, provide feedback, or suggest future guests or topics, please contact us through our website. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us. Please spread the word.